Warning, incoming game. Warning, incoming game. Welcome to Incoming Game Season 2 Bonus Wrap-Up. Uh, I'm Ben, of course, as you might know. <laughs> and I'm Jessica. And I'm Binky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. That's one question off the list. <laughs> Someone wanted Gavin to do his Binky impression, so... <laughs> cocoa, sir, would you... I've got some cocoa here, if you like. I could get it and some biscuits. I've got some biscuits. <laughs> And we're here with our bonus episode, which obviously is starring Gavin Blair. Hello. Co-creator, writer, voice of Binky, many, many hats that you wore. Yeah. And yeah, so welcome again to the bonus episode. We've got a lot of questions from us experiencing this season. We've got a lot of questions from fans of the podcast and fans of the show. Uh, So I guess we might as well just go right into it. Let's go. So... First things first, uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about Bad Bob for a second. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we've heard a little bit of how Bad Bob came to be and then eventually turned into the creation of Mad Max Fury Road yeah. by uh, Brendan McCarthy. So wanna, do you want to get into that a little bit? Sure, yeah, yeah. Brendan is a huge Mad Max fan. I think one day we were we were going through some approvals on some designs he'd done for Andrea. So he gives Ian this pile of drawings, and Ian's going through the drawings, going, "Oh, I like that. Well, that's nice. Ooh, a bit more of that. Oh, I like the scales on that. That kind of thing." And then he he pulls up this drawing and goes, "What the hell is this?" And it's it's a it's actually in the reboot art book. It's it's the classic picture of Megabyte as a truck. Uh, and Brendan goes, "Oh, it's Megabyte as a truck. It's good, isn't it?" And and Ian's like, yeah, but why? <laughs> he's like, <laughs> and he's like, you know, we didn't ask for this. He's like, no, no, I just had this idea and I just drew it. It's cool, eh? And we're like, yeah, it is very cool. So then we start talking about it and very quickly realized that it was too good an idea not to do anything with because Brendan drew a picture of Fong as the gyro captain and it's like okay well that has to happen and (laughs) how the hell do we do that and he draws Bob's car as a car with wheels and it's like okay we have to do that too so then we had to work out the logistics of how we get Megabyte in a game and how we turn him into a truck because he doesn't (laughs) reboot but it's kind of weird and how do we and then we riff on this and it becomes Bad Bob Oh, so that was something that I kind of noticed in the episode itself was that even though Megabyte was in the game and Hack and Slash were saying how he's gone crazy like he didn't seem to have any agency like he was just a truck Yes, that was very vague like how much control Megabyte had of what he was doing or whether he was just slave to the game. Because he got warped by the energy. Everybody else was in the game legitimately, quote-unquote. But Megabyte was absorbed into the energy and then the energy became part of the game and that's what the game did. I really love that you guys got to work backwards there. Rather than having a story idea or necessarily wanting to do Mad Max, you're just like, I really like this drawing. Let's come up with the story. We had an, an amazing drawing and it's like... How can we make this happen? And then how did that become Fury Road? So what was the story there? Well, don't quote me on this. I think this is the story. Because <laughs> Brendan, huge fan of Mad Max. Basically, he used this episode of Reboot as a way to get George Miller's attention. <laughs> he, I think, I literally think he sent a copy of the episode to George Miller with a cover letter saying... My name is Brendan McCarthy. You may know me from this. And I love Mad Max. And I did this. And what do you think? And that basically started a conversation between 
Brendan and George Miller and they hit it off and they got on great and they became friends. And Brendan spent five years or something crazy working with George in Sydney, kicking around and developing the idea that eventually became Mad Max Fury Road. So the fan became... The creator. The fan became the co-creator. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Brendan used to draw stuff and show it to me and Ian and some really weird stuff. <laughs> you know, like the... I think it, it just appears very quickly in the movie. There's a scene where they've got these women who are being milked. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, he had this whole subplot about these women who are used for milk and me and Ian are looking at these droids going, dude, you're crazy. <laughs> There was such world building in that, like, that was only touched on, like, in the movie itself. Yeah, exactly. And the whole thing with the the weird guys who spray, you know, all the stuff with the war boys. Brendan had, he'd worked it all out, what he wanted to do with them and what, how, where they came from and what they did and how they worked and what their logic was. And yeah, you, you get some of it for, like, that long in the movie. Yeah, it feels, even with that little bit, you can tell how much he put into it. It feels like a real, realized world. Yeah. So there you go, kids. Never give up on your dream because it might <laughs> it might happen. So we saw a lot of names credited with the different story ideas this season. And I was curious, just, you know, what was the process in real life? Did you guys have a writer's room? Did you put stuff back and forth and that's how the story broke? Uh, did you have kind of this overarching theme and you threw it out to a specific writer? Uh, did you guys use the storyboard to drive the script or vice versa? What's the day-to-day... Right, yeah, because this is uh, particularly season one and season two. It's not that the credits are wrong, it's just they don't tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because of Canadian content regulations. If you're making a show in Canada and you're getting tax breaks, basically, from the Canadian government, to qualify for those tax breaks, you have to adhere to Canadian content regulations. It's like a point system. Look at it this way, like um, a director is a thousand points, a runner is 10 points. And f- to qualify for Canadian content uh, assistance, money, if effectively, your show has to add up to so many points. So if your director is Canadian, ooh, lots of points. If your writer is Canadian, lots of points. And you have to hit a certain target or you don't get the money. (laughs) So, like, for example, all the season one episodes are credited as directed by Zondag Entertainment, which is a Canadian company. So, big tick, lots of points for the director on season one. Now, who directed those episodes is not stated. Uh, And like on season two, there was Bad Bob was one, was an episode where we felt very strongly that Ian, who is not a Canadian, get credited with directing the show because he did a great job in very little time, and it turned out fantastic. So a lot of people surrendered their credit. So, like, you look at the story by credits on that one, and Brendan's on there because he has to be, because, you know, bless him, we can't cut him out of that one. (laughs) So we, we wanted Ian and Brendan to get the full credit. So people like me and Phil forgave our credits on that one. So, you know, the story by only has a couple of names on it, or possibly one name on it, and you can guarantee that that one name is Canadian. (laughs) But to get to uh, Jess's question about how it worked, the central core of the show was me, Ian and Phil. We were known collectively as The Hub, and all creative decisions, whether it was to do with story or design or direction or whatever, went through us. We we had the final say on everything and and made all the calls. Uh, We worked with people inside the company 
to come up with the storylines and develop the storylines. We, we more or less worked out what happened in every episode before we brought in a writer. And then we'd bring in a writer and run it by them and see what they brought to the table. We were always wanting to bring in creative people and have them bring something to the table. The writer would go away, come up with a draft. We'd go through the draft. We'd give notes. He'd do another draft. We'd kick it around a bit more, tweak it, bend it, shape it. He'd come up with maybe a third draft, say. And then at some point when we were about to go into production on the episode, We'd take the script off the right, say, thank you very much. You'll get your credit. Here's your money. You'll get your credit. And we'd take the script off them. And then we would do a final edit on the script. So I wanted to ask you about, um, since you were airing both on ABC and YTV at the same time, now, was the BSNP pushback coming from both of them or just ABC or what? Um, YTV loved us a bit and we could do no wrong. And they didn't give a damn. <laughs> they let us do anything because the show was phenomenally successful on YTV. And they were like, no, it's great. Every, our audience loves it. We've got massive ratings. Don't care. Do whatever you want to do. Oh, so all the BSNP was, was still from ABC, particularly when they got bought out by Disney. Mm-hmm. And then it, it kind of got a bit worse. But conversely, we knew they were going to dump us. So we took less and less notice of them. <laughs> I'm trying to remember like the last time we listened to BSNP. When we finished Bad Bob, we sent it to ABC and we got a letter back saying episode rejected because of all the violence, I guess, and the, the gloominess and stuff. Children flying helicopters and stuff like that, which is obviously imitable behavior. <laughs> and Ian phoned up Mary and said, Mary, I, I don't understand. You know, we did this episode for you. And she's like, what do you mean you did it for me? And he's like, well, when you were up here and we were hanging out and chatting, you said your favorite cartoon back in the day was Wacky Racers. <laughs> and so we we made this episode for you. It's wacky. It's our version of Wacky Racers. And she went, really? And he went, yeah. And she hung up the phone and the next thing came off the fax machine was a, a letter that said, approved with no notes. <laughs> and I think that was our, basically our last interaction with BSP. We'd get notes saying, we're not sure about this. And we'd go, we don't care. <laughs> and you'll notice in Web World Wars, there are all those CPUs crashing into the Gildergate Bridge and things like this and big fireballs. And they're like, so the pilots got out, right? And we're like, nah, they're dead. <laughs> you know, they wanted they wanted little parachutes to come out of every explosion. And we were like, no, this is war. People are dying. It's horrible. <laughs> so basically from Bad Bob on, we didn't give a monkeys. So how far into season two did you know that you were being cancelled? And if you knew you weren't being renewed, what was the reason for ending on a cliffhanger? <laughs> <laughs> how soon did we know? That we were done. I'm not sure. I think maybe when we were producing the final four episodes. Uh, you know, it's not like we knew there was a lifeline out there. So it, it was, a, unlike the end of season four, uh, we deliberately ended on a cliffhanger. And I don't think we knew we were had a chance to come back at that point. But I, I could be remembering that wrong. Was the option to continue on with YTV on the table? Or was it just like it was over if ABC cancelled? Oh, no. Y, YTV would always have backed us and indeed they did on season three they were they were a major backer on season three but um we needed other people too you know that wouldn't have been enough so was that cliffhanger at the end meant to entice abc to renew it or was just like that's just how you wanted to end it 
No, we, we knew we were done with ABC uh, because of Disney. We heard from insiders that Disney were furious that they hadn't made their own CG show yet. Oh. <laughs> they, they were screaming and shouting at their people going, and uh, this is a direct quote from someone, how come a bunch of Vancouver farmers can make a show <laughs> in CG and Disney can't? Little did they know you were actually British. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, so D- Disney were like, no, we want our own CG shows. We're not paying someone else to make one for us. So we knew we were done with ABC. We knew we'd need another production partner. But the cliffhanger was a creative decision. Because we'd done that fake out earlier where it looked like Bob was dead. Mm-hmm where he flies up with the bomb and then gets rid of the bomb and doesn't die in the explosion. And it's like, no, this time we're going to do it. And we're going to go right the way to the end with it. And we did. And I, I mean, I think it's... The end of the episode get, still gets me now. It's good. Watching that scene, the, the bit where... my f- One of my favourite bits of reboot animation ever is the bit where Doc gives Enzo the key tool. And if you look at that scene, it's Enzo on the left and Dot on the right and Andrea in the middle. Mm-hmm. And as and as Dot puts the key tool in Enzo's hand, Andrea goes <gasps> and puts her hands on her mouth, and it oh it gets it's sending shivers up my spine now. Aww. Well, it was a great bit of setup because like yeah, like you know like Bob's gone, glitch is broken, like the bad guys have taken over, and so it's like to think if you were doing that with the intention of that being the series finale. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's all set up, and then it's like, well, that's the end. <laughs> and it's like, what, what do you mean that's the end? It's like watching uh, Empire Strikes Back and having no Return of the Jedi. To- <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. I, I, gotta, I gotta think, I honestly can't remember, but I have to assume that we suspected we might be able to come back. I'd have to check with Dan or Ian, you know, about what was happening behind the scenes business-wise at that point. Um, so let's go on to a little bit like lighter note. Yes. yes. <laughs> so you guys managed to get Jillian Anderson on the show. Oh, that was so cool. <laughs> she was married to one of your art directors. Is that the story? She was married to Clyde Klotz, who was one of our production designers. Okay. Lovely, lovely man, local guy. And we heard through him that she was a big fan of the show. And we were like, oh my God, really? Because we were huge <laughs> This is like season two-ish, season three-ish on X-Files, I guess. And and we were all huge fans of, of, of X-Files. And I was in love with Gillian Anderson. <laughs> um, and we heard from him like, oh, she's a big fan. And we're like, oh, that's so cool. He's like, she asked me, you know, could she come in for a tour? And we're like, of course she can. So, <laughs> so I got the absolute honor of showing around the place and it was oh it was so cool because you know we, we were a bunch of geeks right so i'm showing chili and anderson around the building and we'd walk into an animation suite and they'd all like do this double take and go because <laughs> scully just walked in the room and they're all like oh my god i had a, an x-files poster on the wall and she we walked in and i'm explaining you know this is how we make the characters talk and this is my assistant who's fainted and you know things <laughs> like this and she looked and saw the poster and like looked on my desk and saw a sharpie and picked up the sharpie and signed the poster and oh my like, goodness you know, and she was doing that all around the building she'd like walk hello hi hi and like spanky Andrew Spanky Grant would was like, you know, can I, can I get a picture? And she's like, sure. And she just sits on his lap, and, <laughs> and he and he's like dying. And it was she was just just a sweet, an absolute sweetheart of a, of a lady. And we showed her around, and it was great. And while she was there, Ian's like, so you know, 
if we were going to, you know, maybe do a spoofy X-Files kind of episode, would you be interested in... And she's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And it's like, <laughs> oh, my God. So we, we all kept very calm, and then she left, and then we freaked out. And it's like, okay, <laughs> that episode now has to go front burner. Because, you know, you never know with real celebrities that they say yes, and then if you leave it too long, they're like, oh, no, sorry, I'm in L.A. now, and I can't do it, and uh, oh, maybe I'll do it later. I mean, we, we had an episode in the pipeline, which was called Energy Vampire. And it was like, okay, accelerate that episode. And and I think Ian was in his office for a long, all weekend writing the dialogue <laughs> just for her. And then it's like, okay, everything else will patch around it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and and we did ask her if, if David was, was interested. And she's like, no, he's not. <laughs> and we're like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll get uh, Scott McNeil to do a really bad impression of him. <laughs> So speaking of Scott McNeil, we have a few voice actors that will end up doing multiple roles. Mm. I know Dot's voice actor also did uh, the motorcycle lady <laughs> at one point. Um, I think she, she might have done Miss Brody as well, or the teacher. Yeah. Is this just because you really like these actors, or does it save money to have the same actor come in? Or It's it's a little of little from both columns really um you you obviously you you write an episode and you have your core cast and then there are incidental characters who pop in and out and you tend to allot them all of them want to do all of them you know you're like who wants to do it? Uh, yeah i'll do it and it's like no you can't all gary you can't do all the voices man. <laughs> you, you're already doing five voices on the show you can't do another one <laughs> Now, when they do the uh, extra incidental characters, are they getting paid extra for that, or is that just part of the regular salary? I'm not 100% au fait with this, because I didn't handle paying the actors, but I believe it's on a line count basis, so it depends how many, like, I think it, you have to do a certain number of lines for it to count as a character, so you get this much for a major character, this much for a minor character, depending on how many lines that character does. I believe, I think that's the way it worked, I don't know for sure. So I have a question. You mentioned briefly on Twitter that you said you had some painful memories attached to painted windows. Is that something you would mind getting into? No, what happened was we, kind of like with the writers, we we started bringing in outside directors to share the workload. And we brought in an outside director and he was uh, a guy called Michael and he was a smashing bloke and I got on great with him. But he overran. We had an eight-week turnaround on each episode for animation. So we were looking at the numbers on week four going... You're behind schedule. You're not going to make it. He's like, no, no, I'll make it up. Week five. No, you're even further behind schedule. Week six. And it, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And by the time it got to week seven, he was like way behind. So Michael got replaced. Ian stepped in and finished the direction on the show. And basically a whole bunch of shots had to be reanimated or tweaked because uh, they weren't right. They, he'd gone way too mad with the camera. <laughs> and it, it, things like that. It just went it went way out of control, and I nearly had a nervous breakdown, and Ian sent me home for a few weeks. I had to go away and recover and stuff like this. And that's why it was very painful for me. But it all worked out. I mean, you know, the, it looks great because it was animated twice. You know? <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's a fantastic final result because it had a, almost double the normal schedule for animation. 
was it cathartic going back and watching it this many years later? It was. It was. I watched it and and all I could see was, you know, this is a great story, you know, and these concepts are really good and Hexadecimal is fantastic and Mike the TV is fantastic and oh my God, all the art that we put in there. I could watch it with no emotional attachment to it. I could just watch it like a, an episode of TV that I hadn't seen before. And that was really cool. Uh, so you've heard most of our reactions to season two by now. Is there anything that we missed or anything we got wrong or anything that you were just like, oh man, yeah, that part uh, from listening to us talk about it that you wanted to bring up? No, I think you, I think you spotted most things you know there was a few little bits of trivia i was going to throw out there but no generally speaking i think you can see where we start laying things in there that jess you know pay off later <laughs> i was noticing like oh that's where we mentioned that for the first time and oh yeah oh, i forgot we put that there and all the stuff about the web i mean it's uh, the codemaster isn't yeah. it where he appears yeah, and bob this. says are you from the web and everybody goes <gasps> the web and it laying in those little moments and sort of dropping the little hints that Bob is a different kind of guardian to your normal guardians. Yeah, that was a surprise to me too. The whole cabal dark room. You know why the room was dark, right? Because she didn't want to make their faces, probably. Because <laughs> we didn't we didn't have time to re to build five <laughs> human characters. We actually have a lot of questions um from our our Patreon backers and our listeners, and one of them is about the Codemasters by our uh, fan, Nolan Hayes. So you laid this groundwork, you had this whole episode about them, and then it was never brought up again. Were there future plans for them at the time? I think at the time, we did think that they might come back, and then the way the whole thing moved forward, we never got, you know what I mean? We never got there. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people sort of go, you know, oh, it's a shame they couldn't have spent more episodes doing this, or done extra episodes of this, and it's like, you know, when you sell the show to a network, they say, we'll take 13, or we'll take 10, or we'll take 16, and that's all you've got. So yes, it would be great to spend more time doing this, that, or the other, but we've got this many episodes to tell this much story. Do you think the Codemasters asked Mouse to join, and she said, nah, I'm good? <laughs> is, that a, is that a fan theory? <laughs> that's my that's fan theory. theory. <laughs> <laughs> Mouse pretty much does what Mouse wants to do. Yeah, she's like, oh, no, sorry. You got rules? I'm good. Is she growing on you yet, Ben? Mouse? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, another listener, uh, David Gype, and also me, like, we both had the same question as, uh, what was the reasoning for introducing Andrea? Was it just to be a love interest for Enzo, or was there more to it? Because at this point, at the end of season two, it seems like she's only there for exposition. <laughs> <laughs> she was she was very useful for exposition. Yeah, if you've got a character who doesn't live there and doesn't know what's going on, it's very handy. It was primarily a way to get a friend for Enzo, because... You know, we felt sorry for the little guy, and it's if giving him a friend helps us put stuff on the table about the backstory of the Twin City and things like this, and their dad, and the experiment, and the fact that's why there are less sprites, and and Enzo doesn't have friends, and all that, it, it serves two purposes. It, it creates a new character who's a kid, and gives Enzo a friend, because that whole... You know, big sister, guardian, little brother, triangle, I think would have got kind of old. And it also introduced a bunch of concepts about games and game sprites and things like this. And the whole idea that there are artificially intelligent sprites and things like that. 
So we had another question from another listener, David Cabrera. He would like to know why the sudden change of direction towards the end of the season? Uh, and if this was a reaction of ABC canceling the show? Yeah, I saw that tweet and I was I was looking at it going, sudden change of direction? Was it? Was <laughs> it? I mean, what, at what point is the sudden change of direction that he's referring to, do you think? Well, I think there's a few people who had the same question. They It seems like those last four, especially, like seem to kind of be going in a different way than the series had previously. So like in terms of I like, the dramatic stakes and everything, probably in the story arc and all that. Yeah, I guess if you look at look back at it, obviously that last four episodes of season two is kind of the way they go forward. So is that the change of direction? But I look at it and go, well, no, because we always planned that. You know, we, we, even when we were doing this episode, we talked about the web and things. So we were definitely planning on going in that direction. You see, I, it's funny. I don't see it as a sudden change in direction. I see it as a evolution in our direction. And maybe not direction, but kind of tone, maybe. No, yeah, I, I get that. And it's, like I said earlier, you only get this many episodes to tell all that story you want to tell. So you've got to start making calls and making, you know, the decision tree starts refining Mm -hmm. and okay so you spend the first few episodes first four or five episodes of season two picking your direction and then okay now we're locked into this direction and this is what we're going to do to get where we're going any storyteller i think starts wanting to tell bigger and bigger stories we're now becoming hopefully better storytellers and we're telling around a fuller more you know structured story which can go in big directions and do big things. I can definitely see that. I, I think it's interesting that people point out those last four episodes, and I guess because they're kind of a cohesive arc. Uh, but for me, watching Bad Bob from that moment on, this was a different show. It was cohesive. It was on a different level than it had been previously. No, that I'm I'm with you you on that, Jess. It's it's you know you I think from that point forward we knew what we were doing and where we were going. So let's let's go with uh, Michael Steele. He asks uh, with the web creatures and web portals being completely unlike anything seen in the show so far, kind of organic yet intentionally uncanny valley. Um, was it hard to animate those Lovecraftian monsters? Or <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was stuff we handed to our Uber geeks. Chris Wellman and his and his team of programmers. You know, we were messing with like lots of new bits of software and stuff and, and Chris got some of his programmers to basically program fractal things that would just replicate these patterns that just kept going. So David Geip asks, uh, does Old Man Pearson require the Gibson coil to use all of his code knowledge? So I guess does he need this tool in order to use this knowledge or does he have the knowledge and the tool is just a tool i think he's got the knowledge it's kind of like bob and his key tool like bob knows everything about being a guardian and he can do some of it without glitch but certain things he can't do without glitch if you were a part of the reboot robot entomologizing force (laughs) (laughs) what would your vehicle and call out command be i my favorite vessel on uh, Thunderbirds was always Thunderbird 4. So it would be some sort of submersible, uh, but styled in, what would it be? Oh, a spider, some sort of spider. Ah. Yes, so a submersible spider craft. There you go. Uh, So we can ask the the big final question, I think, (gasps) which is without going too far into spoiler territory, 
Um, what are you looking forward to us seeing in season three? I know season two, you really wanted us to watch Bad Bob, <laughs> which was fantastic <laughs> and definitely lived up to that. Yeah, I mean, um, Evil Dead. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, the the Evil Dead episode is just, I think, talk about hitting the ground running. You really did. Picking up exactly where we leave off, but all of a sudden the graphics are like ten times better. <laughs> Uh, what else? Um, Firewall. Oh, I'm so looking forward to Ben watching the intro for Firewall. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yes, Firewall, where Ian and I got to basically uh, live out a childhood dream of writing a James Bond theme. Um, <laughs> and then what else? Oh, I mean, the the because I don't know, Ben, are you familiar with The Prisoner? We've talked about this a little bit, so I know I know that there's a prisoner heavy episode coming up, but I, and I know of it, but I I'm not familiar with it in the sense that I've never seen it. Right. Okay. So you'll be as mind warped as our producer was when we showed him that episode <laughs> for the first time, because that if you know the prisoner, you watch that episode and go, yeah, I get it. And if you don't, if you don't know the prisoner, you watch that episode and go. What the hell did I just watch? <laughs> the whole time we were doing it, Dandadio kept saying, are you sure about this, guys? And we're like, yes, yes, we're sure we're doing it. And he's like, okay. So we did episode seven, and then me and Ian sat down in the edit suite with Chris Broff and showed him the episode. And he just watched the whole thing in silence. And it finished. And then he just sort of turned around and went, well, and just walked, <laughs> and just walked out the room. And it, we just blew his mind completely because it is a bit of a mind warper that episode. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again. This this has been fantastic. We love talking to you. We love hearing about the behind the scenes stuff. I mean, that's I live for that kind of stuff. It's always fun. Yeah, it was my absolute pleasure. Game over. The user wins.